Hey everybody, good morning. My name's Aaron. I'm the campus pastor from the Henrietta campus, but we're so glad that you're here with us at all of our locations and online. Thanks for joining us this weekend. I hope you're looking forward uh, to a great day today. I heard the weather might even be good, although when I drove in, it was not so good. So hopefully you got some sunshine. Um, but hey, you guys know what the phrase or the, the term the GOAT is, right? Have you heard of that? It means the greatest of all time. It's an acronym. Well, and people love talking about like, what is or who is the GOAT? Okay, they're always talking about like, who's the, great, who's the GOAT quarterback? Or is LeBron the GOAT? Or which musician is the GOAT? Or whatever. People are always debating this. They always have super strong opinions and it's kind of fun to like get people angry about it. Anyway, that's another conversation. But um, I think, you know, it's kind of fun to think about who might be the greatest of all time. Every area, everything, arena of life probably has a GOAT. Um, and, and I think if, that if there's somebody who's in the running to potentially have been the greatest of all time at a particular task, they are probably somebody that we should want to learn from, right? They might have some tips or tricks that we could benefit from, whether it's leadership or sports, you know, whatever your thing is. I don't know if it's sleep training infants, um, you can tell what stage of life I'm in, um, or exercise, or the stage of life I'm not in, <laughs> whatever. Um, there, we go to the source and try to learn from the best. Um, I'm trying to get better at woodworking, so I watch a bunch of YouTube videos, because there's some of the, so probably amazing, some of the best woodworkers are putting out content on how to get better, so I like to learn from them. Um, all young quarterbacks, man, they watch film of Tom Brady, because he's the GOAT, and no, nothing? No, it's just nothing? Okay. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. No, it's just fine. It's, no, it's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. No, I mean, seriously, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. No, but anyway, yo, he's, he's, in some people's opinion, the greatest of all time at his position, so people want to learn from him. But yet then, at the end of the day, this series is actually all about one of the goats of Christianity, because Paul is the goat of spreading the message of Jesus. Like, he was unbelievable at this. Paul, or Saul, he's got two names, he'll be called by both throughout this series. He was an early church leader who was the best, the greatest of all time, about telling the world about Jesus. He traveled all over the world. 50-plus cities are mentioned in the New Testament alone. He wrote 13, possibly 14 of the books in the New Testament. I mean, Honestly, probably everything you know about Christianity, if it didn't come from Jesus, it probably came from Paul. And I'm not like bashing the other early church leaders. I'm just saying like nobody did more traveling or writing or really anything than Paul. God, he was God's chosen instrument to get this movement going global. He's the GOAT. So if you want to learn from those who are the best in any area, I think that we're going to have to learn from Paul. And if we're going to have to learn from him, I think we're going to have to find out a little bit more about how he did his thing, if we're going to learn. But you might be thinking, okay, why? Right? I mean, I'm not planning to become a missionary, so why do I need to be, why do I need to be learning from Paul? And I would say, first of all, you're wrong about that, but we'll talk about that in just a, little bit, just a minute. But the other thing that I think should motivate us to want to learn from Paul and follow his example is he literally told us to, okay? So in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, it says this. This is Paul writing, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul literally told us to copy him. So if you're the kind of person who just prefers that somebody shoot straight with you, there it is. You should do it because Paul said that you should do it. He is a man worth learning from. Let me think about this for a second. At first, Paul was famous for pushing people away from Jesus, as hard as he could. And then, to everyone's surprise, he became one of the biggest influencers toward Jesus ever. 
All right, this would be like a super famous musician, like, I don't know, like a rapper or something, um, who was maybe known for being kind of vulgar and maybe blasphemous, uh, like placing their faith in Christ, you know, I'm just hypothetically, and then producing like Christian music, for instance. That'd be kind of crazy, right? If, if that sort of a thing happened. Um, have you guys heard of Kanye? Um, okay. I would assume for said hypothetical artists that it would be very difficult at first, right? I mean, they don't fit in in either world. Christians are gonna be super skeptical, right? People that he used to hang out with are gonna be like, really confused, like what in the world is going on right now? But somebody that influential, if they made a change that big, I mean, that could end up being a pretty big deal, right? You right? Yeah. If you Google Kanye, if you don't know what I'm talking about, right? Um, but, but this is not our main point today, but I just gotta say, if you're having a hard time believing Kanye, that he's legit, and I, I get that. If you're having a hard time believing him because he used to say bad words in his songs, imagine what the early Christians felt like accepting a guy as one of their leaders who used to kill them, okay? I recognize that it's not the same, but I think that this moment with Kanye West gives us something to consider as Christians of the gravity of Paul's change, how skeptical some Christians might be feeling right now, understandably, how crazy would it have been for Paul? Anyway, probably gonna come up on the podcast this week. All right, anyway. But Paul overcame those odds, all right? God used him, and Paul is worth copying. So where do we start, all right? What can we learn that would change the way that we do things today? Now, obviously, we cannot possibly cover every single thing about Paul's life in any one day. That's crazy. But instead, I'm just gonna make four observations about how Paul did his thing, and then we can pull some lessons from those observations, okay? And as we're getting started, I just want to recommend this resource briefly. You can get this on our website that we made called paulseries.com. You can get it through our Equip email. If you sign up on your connections card for the Equip email, we'll make sure that you get it. But it's a 25-minute video from the Clarifying the Bible series, and it's all about the missionary work of Paul. It is incredible. I mean, it goes over every single stop of his missionary journey, which letters he wrote, why he wrote them, who was with him as he wrote them, gives excerpts from the letter. The guy's amazing. I've watched it probably two or three times in the last couple weeks. It's so, so helpful. You owe it to yourself. Please go watch it like two or three times. It's really, really helpful to understand Paul's life. Um, but let's get rolling. That's just a sidebar. I hope it's helpful for you this week. We're going to be spending the vast majority of our time in the book of Acts, which is just a historical account of what happened in the early church. And one thing you should know about this um, book is that the book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. What do we mean by that? Well, it just tells us what happened. It doesn't necessarily tell us what we need to do today, okay? It's just a historical account. So we're just gonna see if by observing his life, we can come to some reasonable conclusions based on the facts. Looking at his patterns, see what we need to do. Honestly, you could probably say that my bottom line for this morning is just simply act like Paul, okay? That's probably it, act like Paul. Um, and each of us, we're gonna have to figure out how Paul's example challenges us individually in areas where we need to be more like Christ. Okay, we're gonna have to do a little bit of work on our own to figure out what that looks like. Um, and, and as we're rolling and getting started, I just wanna give you a little bit of context, hopefully some like 30,000 foot view of how Paul did ministry that will create a little bit of framework for how he did his thing. Because, I mean, he had three different missionary journeys. There were dozens of cities and lots of churches that he got started. Um, so I think that you could describe this kind of as Paul's church launch process. Okay, this is kind of how he did his thing. So the first step in that process was simply he would arrive. 
Okay, he would arrive somewhere. That's not too complicated. He would show up. Typically, he'd be rolling with his squad because he very rarely traveled alone. And his first step was to get embedded. He would set up shop, as in literally set up shop. He was a tent maker, so he would get his business and his trade rolling. And then he would start building relationships. His next step after he arrived was he would preach. So he would arrive and then he would preach. Normally, he would start in the synagogue, which was the, the gathering place specifically for religious Jews. So he would preach there. And from there, he would just literally preach wherever he could, wherever he could find a spot. So in Ephesus, he actually rented out a lecture hall. Um, in Athens, he just went to the marketplace. In Corinth, he used his business as kind of a launching pad. Um, in Thessalonica, he was in and out of people's homes throughout it. In a different city along the way, this just kind of proves he wasn't always a terribly interesting preacher, I guess. Um, super late night. He's preaching all night. The room gets stuffy. It's like packed with all these people listening to him. And a dude who was sitting, listening, well, sitting in a window, fell asleep, fell out of the window to the ground and died. It got real, okay? Paul brings it back to life. It works out. You should read the story sometime. But he apparently wasn't always that interesting. Um, but anyway, you get the point. He would, he would show up somewhere and he would start telling people about Jesus wherever he could and wherever made sense. And then his next step is he would leave. He would depart. Um, and sometimes this was really, really hard for him. Like everyone's weeping and wishing he didn't have to go. Other times he was very happy to be moving on. Um, and sometimes God literally commanded him to leave. Other times he just felt like it was the right thing to do, but he would leave for the next opportunity. But what was cool is that he would always end up circling back. So that's the final step. He would depart, but then he would circle back and he'd just like check in on him, see how things are going. He couldn't always do this in person, and obviously there wasn't like Skype, so he had to write letters. And the letters that he wrote in order to circle back with his friends are what make up most of the New Testament. It's him just checking in, correcting their problems, answering their questions, and that's how he checked in to see how things were going as they were trying to get start, started. So that's how Paul kind of did his thing. He would arrive, preach, depart, and circle back. And everything we're gonna talk about today, everything pattern he has fits somewhere within that framework. Um, so I think we should just get after it, all right? We've got four facts that we wanna go over and what we can learn from them. Number one, first fact, Paul was relentless with the message he had been given. Paul was relentless with the message. If you're at all familiar with this guy's life, this is probably not a point that I need to prove, but I wanna take the time to do it, humor me, okay? Um, I want to give you a tiny sample of how relentless this guy was with his preaching. For funsies, I have limited myself randomly to excerpts from Acts 13 and 14. I like flipped open my Bible and pointed. I limited myself to just those two chapters, okay? Let's see what we can find just in those two chapters. Acts 13, starting in verse 14. Here's what it says. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hands and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And he goes off and he preaches. A few verses later, verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. More preaching. A few verses later, in a different city, Acts 14, verse 1, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. They spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. So much speaking. Different city. Acts 14, verse 8, in Lystra, they listened to Paul as he was speaking. And another city, verse 20, the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Okay, enough, right? Do you get it? This is just 
two chapters, and it's not even every example of him preaching in those two chapters. This is insane. And this is the pace at which this guy works for the whole rest of his life. Nothing stops this guy. What I didn't mention in those two chapters, just those stories that I was reading, in those two chapters alone, he's confronted by a sorcerer. He is verbally abused by various leaders. He's forcibly removed from a whole region. Some dudes try to stone him and fail. Another group of people succeed in stoning him, but he wasn't all the way dead. He was just mostly dead. And so he got up and kept preaching. He's relentless. So what should we learn? What should we learn from this? I'm not going to lie. What we should learn is probably kind of obvious um, because I would suggest that most of us are not on the verge of being accused of being overly relentless with pursuing our friends and family who are far from God. I would just guess. And I'm not pretending at all that I am immune to this, but let me prove it to you a little bit. Um, Every year, our church takes a survey on a Sunday morning. We hand it out. If you've been around, you've maybe taken this. And we just kind of get a sense of where our church is anonymously, how people are doing on various spiritual fronts, and get a sense of who God is bringing us to be able to serve. Um, And the data from that survey shows us a lot of different things. But we have a question about how often people are inviting people to church. Okay, not how often they're preaching the gospel, not how many times they led someone to faith in the last year. I'm talking about how often over the last year they've handed someone an invite card, okay? That's the nature of the question. Here's what the numbers say. 51%, half of the people on a Sunday morning have invited one or two people. Okay, that's half. And then one third have invited three people or more. So half have invited one or two people, a third have invited three people or more. Now guys, that's pretty great. Honestly, like we're pretty thrilled with that. 85% of the people who come to our church on a given Sunday morning, they come because someone invited them. So we honestly feel pretty good about that. But I I want us to pause and actually think about that for a second. One third of our church has invited three people or more. Half of our church has invited maybe one, maybe two, which means that 17% of our church has invited precisely zero people. The invite cards are languishing away in their wallet or purse. And guys, I promise, I'm not trying to be a jerk, okay? I recognize our situation is not the same as Paul's. But there's a part of me that genuinely wonders, should we as a church be excited about the fact that one-third of our church has handed an invite card to three people? Three people. Guys, in one chapter, Paul preaches on almost that many continents. And we're excited about three invite cards. I mean, is it possible that our standards are incredibly low? Have we watered down living a life on mission to one invite card every four months in a best case scenario? And believe me, look, I'm no Paul, okay? My numbers are not where they should be. I'm not trying to make us all feel guilty. I am just saying, though, Paul's unstoppable nature should challenge us. I think we have room, probably, to be a little more ambitious with our sharing of the message of Jesus. We can't get stuck in the invest phase of pray, invest, and invite, okay? That's a progression, it's going somewhere. So here's the question I think for us to think about or to learn. What would it look like for me to prioritize a pi-squared life in my schedule? I'm not saying to compartmentalize it. I mean to prioritize it to the point that it actually gets on the schedule. What would it tangibly look like to set aside days, moments, whole weekends to be investing in people and to making real invites to their next step in faith, whether that's to church or maybe to faith in Jesus. 
And I don't know what it looks like. I think we need to talk about this in our community groups this week. Let's get real tangible about what it looked like to be prioritizing this over other things. So that's the first fact. Let's keep moving. Fact number two, Paul left behind a trail of effective leaders, a trail of effective leaders. There are lots of examples of this because, like I said, Paul rarely did his life alone. Um, but let's check some out. We're going to be, in this next passage, we're reading about how Paul is circling back to some of the churches that he's already visited and started kind of a church role in. So Acts 14, verse 21, it says this, then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So he's circling back. He's already been to these cities. He's going back to them and appointed leaders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. Okay, so you see what he's doing here? He's already visited, he's coming back, and he's leaving leaders behind to make sure that things are going okay in these churches that he's already gotten started. And then in a letter to a young pastor friend named Titus, he wrote this, he said, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the whole reason he left him in Crete was to multiply his leadership. Paul appointed Titus, Titus appointed leaders behind him. Okay, that is leadership multiplication in a nutshell. And probably my favorite example of this is a couple named um, Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila. There was a couple, they were a couple that Paul met during his time in Corinth. Uh, this couple and Paul, they worked in the same trade, and so they hit it off really well with him. And Paul just like pours his life into these people. He's training them, he's teaching them all the time. But almost none of this training or teaching happens in a classroom. It happens while they were at work making tents together. Um, so he's like, training some people that turn out to be extraordinary leaders while they're just doing ordinary things. And one of the coolest stories of leadership multiplication, it involves this couple, um, but I'm gonna go into detail this week in the podcast. If you haven't been listening to our podcast, uh, I would encourage you to check it out. Um, it's just a way to dive a little deeper into Sunday's message, and um, Drew and I get to be a part of that conversation. We're gonna go into more of those details. But Paul trained this couple so well that they were able to, without Paul around, correct and redirect a young guy who turns out to be one of the most influential speakers and leaders in the early ch church movement. And Paul was nowhere near them when this happened, but his influence was felt because of the fact that he had trained others to do ministry. I just think this is so profound for us. Paul knew he couldn't be everywhere at once. <laughs> he knew he wasn't gonna live forever, so he prioritized the churches having someone to be there to lead after he was gone. He came up with a job description for a pastor. That's in 1 Timothy 3. He came up with like a character profile for what a pastor should be in Titus chapter 1. I mean, the, the guy dove down into the details to make sure it all like came together. Since he was always aiming towards sustainability, he chose to invest in people all along the way. So what do we need to learn from this? What do we need to learn from this pattern of Paul? I would say that we just need to never learn alone. Like, bring somebody along. Bring somebody along. All of us should be growing and developing in every area of our life, right? We want to be getting better, and especially when it comes to our spiritual lives. We need to see the importance of encouraging growth in other people by bringing them along with us. Don't learn. Don't grow alone. If you grow with others, you will multiply your leadership in their life and then in the next person's life. Share what you're learning. Share your books or your podcasts or just like things that God is teaching you. Just talk about them. 
Or be that guy who like drags people along while you're doing like the everyday stuff of life. You can multiply leadership. You can grow alongside other people and invest in them while you're making dinner, while you're cleaning the car, while you're serving together in hot spot or like putting on a deck on the back of your house. I don't know, whatever you're doing, you can invest in others. Those are opportunities to use ordinary moments to learn and grow together. Never learn alone. Man, because for Paul, this was not like a theoretical conversation out in left field. I mean, he didn't, he didn't spread the gospel independently from his relationships. He did it through his relationships. These people weren't like, like projects that he needed to check off a list or something. I love what he says in this incredibly personal letter that he wrote to some friends in the city of Thessalonica. Look at what he says to them. It's like, it feels like a love letter. He says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So the question for you is this, are you ready to open up your sphere of influence to the real you? to allow your everyday life to actually be your avenue of ministry. Let's bring somebody along, church. We can do this. Never learn alone. Third fact, Paul worked a normal job. Paul worked a normal job. Remember he met Priscilla and Aquila while he was making tents? Here he's talking with some friends from Ephesus. This is kind of a, an excerpt from a time he was talking with these friends in Acts 20, and it says this. He says, look, I haven't coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Throughout Paul's whole ministry, even when it would have been totally legit for him to get paid for doing his work, something he actually encourages future pastors to do, he personally chose not to do that so he could never be accused of being just in this whole thing for the money. He never received like a standard paycheck for doing ministry. He always supplied his own needs. So think about this for a second because we have to kind of deconstruct what we might be imagining. This is not a guy sitting in his office like pouring over the books. This is not a guy who could do hospital visits in the middle of the day because his schedule was free. He was working his whole life around the fact that he had a mission to accomplish. His occupation was just a means of supporting his real mission in life. So if you're here today at any of our campuses or watching online and you don't work for Northridge Church, your life looks more like Paul's than mine does. It really does. Your life looks more like Paul's than mine does because my family, our needs are met through the generosity of the people of Northridge Church. My wife and I feel so blessed by the privilege of being able to have our whole, my vocation go into this. And we're also thrilled to be able to give right back into this mission together. It's such a privilege. But Paul never had that luxury. He never did. And I think that's so important for us to know. It has a few, I think, huge implications for us as we think about our lives. And the first one is just this, that there actually is no such thing as a normal job. There's no such thing. Sometimes, you know, I'll have friends that will say like, well, yeah, I mean, you're a pastor. I just work a normal job. No, 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 no. Like there's no such thing that, does, that doesn't exist. That's not a thing. There's no such thing as a normal job. And the reason is because there's no such thing as a normal person. We are all eternal beings. 
There are no ministry jobs and secular workplaces. All of that, it doesn't, there's no difference, okay? Anything we do for a paycheck is really just so that we can make a difference in the lives of the people that God has put around us. If you see your job as something you just do, but your volunteer role on Sunday morning as like your ministry, I think you've got it twisted. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Your whole life is ministry. And since you spend the majority of your life at work, I would recommend that you see it as vital that you see your job as a mission field, as an opportunity. I mean, Paul definitely did. Paul always did. And it leads me to another thing that I think we need to learn, and that is that your occupation creates access. It creates access. You're at that desk for a reason. You've been assigned that client for a reason. Nothing is an accident. So don't treat the next customer that you're asked to serve as a task. They are a person in need of the ministry that God has allowed you to bring into their life. If you feel like your passion for Pi Squared is a little bit low right now, start praying for every person that your job allows you to interact with. And I think that you'll find that there's a lot of people with needs that need hope. And look, I think it's really cool that our church has full-time staff. I mean, goodness, it's a luxury and it's amazing. But the people who call Northridge Church their church home and do not work here have access to places that our staff could never have access to, ever. I mean, I would get laughed out of the door of a lot of the places that our people work. It would never get, I would ne it's crazy. I wrote down a bunch of jobs that people at our church have, and I'm gonna read them here. It's a long list, but hold on, people, because I think it's important for us to understand. This is just, honestly, it's a tiny list compared to what it could be. We've got writers We've got reporters, we've got politicians, and activists, and police officers, and doctors, and department heads, and professors, and plumbers, and nurses, and builders, and neighborhood watch captains, and book club attendees, and soccer moms, and masons, and mechanics, and attorneys, and retirees, and accountants, and sanitation workers, and teachers, and administrators. I mean, guys, do you realize the web of influence that God has given us over this city? Are you kidding me? I mean, imagine for a second, if every single person that I just mentioned and the hundreds of other jobs that I couldn't even think of or don't know about were to see their occupation as an opportunity to infiltrate enemy territory with the message of the gospel, can you imagine the way that God could use these people to change our region? Paul made tents and he flipped the world upside down. What could we do with an army like ours in a city like ours? Your occupation gives you access, and church, don't you dare waste it. Use it. As a side note, I think another lesson that we learned from this with Paul is just this. Don't ever be accused of laziness. Don't ever be accused of laziness. Man, in the workplace as a Christ follower, be accused of, I mean, almost anything else except for laziness. I beg of you, please. There's no room for laziness in Christianity. Paul said it this way, again, as he was writing to some friends. When laziness came up, he wrote, hey, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. And again, he's speaking to the Christian community here. He's saying, look, Christians, if you're unwilling to work, you shouldn't eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. It's like, what, what? They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is getting serious, to settle down 
and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. I remember as a kid uh, going into my dad's office and he had one of those like office swivelly chairs, you know, spin around and slide around and it's got like the levers underneath that I never know how to operate. But um, I remember going in there as a kid and I'd sit in his chair and I'd swivel around and try to play with all the settings and get it comfortable for me. But something I always remember is that when I would go to lean back in my dad's chair, it was always locked, always. So like when you're thinking it's gonna lean back and it doesn't, it's kind of jarring. You're like, oh, whiplash, like what? Um, so then I would always like pull out the little pin so I could lean back in my dad's desk chair. I was like, this is great. And one time I eventually just asked him like, dad, what are you doing? Like, you know this thing leans back, right? Why is this always locked so that you can't lean back? And he's like, well, you know, get out of the chair, and I got out, and he sat down. He's like, son, working, relaxing. Working, relaxing. And then he just got up and left. <laughs> but honestly, that stuck with me. I mean, the lesson he was trying to show me is like, when I'm here, I'm not here to put my feet up. I'm here to get something done. I have a job to accomplish. I've been given responsibilities. I'm gonna put them on my shoulder, and I'm gonna work. Work is for working. I'm not here to relax. And man, Christians should never be accused of laziness, ever, please. Paul would never have been, that would never have been a viable excuse against Paul's leadership. Paul worked hard, and I think we should too. The final fact that I think we can learn from him is just that Paul wasn't perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. Man, it'd be easy to believe with all the lessons we're learning about his life, and man, we got weeks to go still in this series, that he was just like the perfect guy, who handled everything well, never made any mistakes. That's just not true. One example of uh, this was in his relationship with a guy whose name is John Mark. We're not gonna go into all the details of it, but uh, John Mark was one of Paul's travel buddies for a minute, and they're doing their thing. At one point, it got kind of tough, and John Mark just decided, like, I'm out, and he abandons Paul and Barnabas and just goes home. Uh, but later on, Barnabas down the road is like, hey, let's give this guy a second chance. Let's get him back on the team. But Paul is not having it, okay? Uh, here's what happens in Acts 15. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia. And he had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement, this is Paul and Barnabas, that they parted company Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Ooh, okay, getting a little weird. There's this big fight, and Paul is kind of being a little bit of a jerk, right? I mean, regardless of the circumstances surrounding why John Mark left in the first place, Paul seems like he's got no grace whatsoever for this guy. I mean, he even hurts his friendship with Barnabas over how adamantly he doesn't think John Mark should be included. But then, Get this, in the very last recorded letter from Paul's life, here's what he wrote to his friend Timothy. He says this, get Mark, that's John Mark, get him and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. He's helpful to me. Think about it. Paul blew up his friendship with Barnabas back in the day because of how worthless he thought John Mark was. Only to turn around and at the end of his life say, hey, 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 make sure you bring him with me. He's useful to me. Paul was a guy who made mistakes, a guy who definitely would have appreciated a do-over every now and again. And honestly, he would be the first person to tell you that he was not perfect, that he made mistakes. 
He talked about that all the time in his writing. In fact, he compares his own mistakes and weaknesses and fragility to being like, um, like a jar, a, a, like a clay jar. And he's like, look, I am fragile, I'm broken, I'm imperfect, you can see all the ways that I'm flawed, but inside of this jar is a priceless treasure, the message of the gospel. And he told his friends, like, look, I'm broken, I'm doing this wrong, I'm messed up, I got flaws, I got a past like you wouldn't believe, but inside of this broken vessel is a message that has to be shared. And yeah, I'm not the greatest vehicle for it, but God's called me to it, so I'm just giving it my best. But this message inside is priceless. It's, it's absolutely a treasure, one that God has given to us that we must spread despite our imperfections and our brokenness. I mean, this is what he says in his letter to his friends in Corinth. He said, hey, but we have this treasure, that's the message of the gospel, in jars of clay to show, to prove, to demonstrate that the all-surpassing power, it's from God. It's not from us. No, nobody's, nobody's impressed with this jar of clay. It's, it's flawed, it's, it's fragile. It's not gonna ever be impressive. But inside of it is the all-surpassing power of the message of the gospel. I think that's all of us as well, that we are fragile, breakable, imperfect containers for a message of the gospel that is priceless. Paul would actually probably be embarrassed to find out that we're teaching about his life because he knew he wasn't perfect. He was saying, look, don't, don't be impressed with what I'm doing. Be impressed with the message of the gospel. But what we're focused on, what I think we need to be focused on this moment is the incredible truth that God used a broken but totally sold out messenger to change the world with a powerful message. And I think that's exactly what he wants to do with us. To take very broken, imperfect messengers, containers, and change the world with a priceless message. I mean, goodness, we're gonna get this real wrong sometimes, right? I mean, sometimes we're gonna be way too over eager and we're gonna like, you know, freak somebody out. And sometimes God's gonna give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and we're never gonna get around to saying anything. And we're gonna spend whole phases of our career zoned out to the people that are around us because we're all about the dollar bills. And we're gonna spend seasons of our life in laziness and selfishness and self-focused and not making a difference in other people's lives. And we're gonna have so many opportunities to do what God has called us to do and we're gonna blow it because we are all jars of clay. We're fragile, we're breakable, but the message is the treasure. And we have to recognize that the surpassing power comes from God, it doesn't come from us. And when we see Paul as not a perfect image of how it must be done, even though we might think of him as the goat, he's an imperfect picture of what it could be. Instead, we focus on the message that Christ died for our sins and was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. The message of Christ crucified that Paul was obsessed with, that's the message that we've been given. And that is our opportunity, because that is where the power comes from. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the message of the gospel. Thank you that um, despite our like really bad attempts at sharing it or total lack of attempts at sharing it, you still use us. And we don't have to be overly impressed with ourselves because there's not a lot to be impressed about, but we get to be amazed at this all-surpassing power coming from you in the message of your gospel. I pray that we would live that and mean that today.
In Christ's name, amen.